Well, this morning we have gathered together to celebrate really the most unbelievable and fantastic event in human history that Jesus rose from the grave. Coincidentally, it's not only Easter, but it's also April Fool's Day. The day in which we celebrate hoaxes and pranks and all sorts of tomfoolery. Like the 1957 Swiss Spaghetti Harvest. It's a thing, and you can check it out if you want later. But Swiss television convinced everyone that there was a great spaghetti harvest that spring. Or like the, the first Swedish color television in 1962. All you had to do was, color television wasn't invented for another eight years or so, all you had to do was pull nylon stockings over your black and white TV and it'd come out color. We enjoy things like uh, the left-handed Whopper put out by Burger King in 1998 or the time in 1996 when Taco Bell purchased the Liberty Bell. Or at least that's what they told America by taking full-page ads out in uh, six major newspapers to, to say that they were helping out with the national debt by purchasing the Liberty Bell. Except that by midday, by midday they had to print a retraction because so many people had called to complain. And these are, these are wonderful in their scope. I mean, the, the fact that they fooled so many people. But the reality is, you know what? I don't want to be fooled. That's the thing. I, I mean, I, this time of year always makes me nervous. I remember, I remember when I was little, I, on St. Patrick's Day, I was just like obsessive about wearing green because I did not want my sister to, you know, pinch me. And then it was only a couple, only a couple weeks later when I would wake up on April 1st. And, I, and I'd have to check the, the sugar bowl to make sure it wasn't salt and the salt shaker to make it was, sure it wasn't sugar and all, all of the other you know, pranks that siblings play on one another. Because I don't want anybody to fool me. And that's, I think that's fair. I imagine most of us, uh, you know, we won't mind fooling someone else, but we don't really want them to fool us. And the reality is, Today, as we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're faced with that same kind of question. Are we going to be fooled by this? Is this a real thing or is this one of those grand hoaxes that's somehow been played on humanity for two millennium? Because I don't want to be fooled. I imagine you don't want to be fooled by this either. In fact... The stakes for being fooled about the resurrection of Jesus are eternal. The stakes 
What's at stake for you and for me about the resurrection of Jesus is far greater than just being fooled by some you know, newspaper ad or television program. The stakes are eternal here. And so I trust that you'll pay close attention not to be the April Fool this morning. Well, the good news is, we're not, we're not the first to worry about being fooled by a resurrection. If that's, if you're worried that this might be, you know, some tomfoolery that might, you know, convince you, uh, or might, somebody might be trying to convince you of something that's not true, you're not the first. In fact, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the scripture and see, really, the first person who did not want to be fooled by a resurrection because he knew what was at stake? His name was Thomas. Okay, that's his first name, even though you know that is his last name because his first name is Doubting, right? Doubting Thomas. And so, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And we'll begin reading in verse 24, which is his story. This is the story of Doubting Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, Hey, we have seen the Lord! But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen Me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, by believing, you may have life in His name. And there you have the dilemma of doubting Thomas. As I mentioned, he didn't want to be fooled by this. Because if you, if you think about what was at stake for him, he had, he had spent the last three years hanging around with Jesus. Jesus was his leader. He had been there when the, when the, um, the soldiers came and arrested Jesus. In fact, he was there at the beginning. He ran like everybody else. He was there looking on when Jesus was hung on a cross. When the sky turned black. When he surrendered his spirit, when the professional executioners decided that he was 
dead and didn't break his legs. Thomas had seen that. He had some evidence already. But he couldn't believe the resurrection. He knew, actually, about the women who ran to the tomb. He knew that that Peter and John had gone there ahead of him. But he said it wasn't enough. In some regard, Thomas does us a big favor. He didn't want to, he didn't want to be the fool. And so he played the part. So we don't have to be fooled either. I think it's important that you have some idea of who Thomas is. Thomas was one of the twelve disciples. And he only shows up in the Gospels two other places besides this that isn't in a list. When it lists the twelve, he's in the list. But he only shows up two other times besides this. And his problem was that when Jesus appeared to the other disciples, he wasn't with them. And so, why is he so skeptical? Let me just introduce you to him based on his other cameo appearances here because he tells us about himself with these two introductions. Really, this is the first time we see him in John chapter 11. Jesus had just said, you know what, guys? We have to go to Jerusalem. And they had objected. They said, don't go to Jerusalem. You'll be killed if you go to Jerusalem. And he said, we're going anyway. And so Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Oh, great. Let's go also that we might die with him. See, he was a realist. He knew, he knew what was going to happen. And in fact, he was right. He knew what was going to happen. And so, he was a little sarcastic. He was a little, uh, he had a little attitude. But we're introduced to him as a realist. He's not going to, he's not going to be fooled by Jesus. He's not going to pull one over on him. He knows we go to Jerusalem and get killed. It's as easy as that. Then we see him again in John chapter 14. Jesus had just told his disciples about heaven. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and and take you to be with me. And then Jesus continued. He said, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, scratching his head, said, Lord, we, we don't even know where you're going. How can we possibly know how to get there? He's a realist. It's like, if we don't know where you're going, how are we going to get there? There's, come on, Jesus. Help me out here. I mean, that's, that's Thomas. That's what we have when we, uh, when we meet him. And Jesus answered him and gave him really one of the greatest answers in all of the Bible. And when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. You may have all kinds of other religious thoughts or other ideas about how you might get to heaven, but no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. 
So Thomas, you probably do know the way. Well, Thomas had not been there when Jesus had introduced himself again to his disciples. And we have that uh, in the uh, earlier in this chapter, in chapter 20, verse 19, it tells us. So what, it's, what has just happened is that uh, Mary had gone very early in the morning to the tomb, found the stone rolled away, and didn't know what to make of it. She ran back to tell the disciples. I presume that Thomas was around them at that time. And, and then Peter and John ran together to the tomb. And they looked into the tomb. And they had seen that um, the, the linen cloths that Jesus had been buried in, the, the one wrapped around His head was nicely folded over here. And then the one that had wrapped His body was nicely folded over here. Thomas knew that. Thomas knew when the disciples came back and said, you know what? We can't explain what's happened to Jesus. He'd heard that Mary had actually seen Him when she came back and told Him a little later. But it wasn't until evening of that same day when the doors were locked because the disciples were afraid of the Jews that Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, I don't know about you, but I would need Him to say, Peace be with you in a situation like that. Right? Because I knew I locked the doors. I knew I didn't want anybody coming in those doors. And yet He did. And the only thing I would presume then would be, hmm, the ghost of Jesus has come in here. Except I don't have any experience with ghosts either. But I just don't have... There's just not a good explanation, right? And so what did Jesus do? When in Jesus had said, Peace be with you, He showed them His hands and His side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Well, there, there's an understatement, isn't it? Okay, They had just seen Him arrested, just seen Him crucified, just given up all hope that He was actually who He said He might be. And they saw then the wounds in His hands and His side. And they were happy about that. And He said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent Me, so I'm sending you. And that was the first time that Jesus appeared to His disciples. And we're told that Thomas wasn't there. So here are his friends, his best friends, with whom he had traveled the countryside for three years. And they had seen Jesus. They had had the advantage of seeing His his, uh, hands and His side. And they told Him, you know what? Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And he just couldn't believe them. He's, he's thinking, what's the next thing they're going to say? April Fools. They're not. They're not going to, he's not going to believe them. So he said to them, unless I see 
in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I'll never believe. Thomas. Thomas knew what to do with fake news, didn't he? See, that's a, that's a big problem for us. We're used to fake news all the time. We're used to our friends forwarding us fake news. That's what he thinks his friends are doing. And so he says, I have a threshold for whether or not I'm going to believe you. I know what it's going to take for me to believe this. And he said, unless I see his hands and place my fingers in his wounds, I'm not going to believe. He had a threshold for belief. And I just have to put that out there for you. What is your threshold for belief? What is it going to take for you to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? See, it's, I mentioned fake news. It's no accident that all of those that all of those great April Fool's pranks that I mentioned happened before the Internet. Before people became accustomed to fake news. So how do you know that you're not here at church on Easter Sunday morning and you're getting more fake news from the preacher? How are you going to know that? You have to have some way you're going to figure that out, right? What's your threshold for belief? Thomas established in his mind his threshold. And in fact, he had decided that if, if somehow the evidence didn't meet that threshold, that he wasn't going to believe. I don't know if you've ever had someone tell you, I will never believe. I was never going to believe. You see, that, that's a little bit different than what Thomas said. Because what Thomas said is, if I am convinced that this is true, then I will believe. Or I will never believe until I'm convinced it's true. That's not a completely willful, I will never believe no matter what. But you see, that's how those two things are connected. If the resurrection actually happened, if it is really true, you need to believe it. If it isn't really true, your belief isn't going to make it so. Your belief isn't going to help anything if the resurrection didn't actually happen. And so Thomas had to weigh in his mind, what is it going to take for me to understand that this actually happened? And I'm going to have to see the physical evidence. Now, it's interesting to me that he pushes back so much on his friends. Because his friends were eyewitnesses. They had earlier uh, seen Jesus. They had run to the tomb. And so, you think about, again, the threshold of belief. What does it take to believe? I mean, most of us are skeptical about 
things of religion like a resurrection in ways that we're not skeptical of other things. I mean, my guess is most of you don't know eyewitnesses to the events of the news that you hear about all the time. And yet you believe that news happened. And here Thomas knew these eyewitnesses. They were his friends. And he said, I I need more. I need more. And so, that's what happens. So eight days later, the disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. So this time, we're told Thomas is there and it's eight days later. Now, eight days seems like an odd number, but if you think about this, the way they counted days was, was pretty consistent. They would count the day you're on and then they would count the rest of the days. So, and this confuses some people because Jesus rose again on the third day, right? And we was crucified on Friday. But if you count the way they counted, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it's three days. It's the way they counted. It's the way they're counting here. Eight days later. So, the first day was... The, the Sunday of the resurrection. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Eight days. It was the next Sunday. The next first day of the week. Eight days later. The church has been gathering together to remember Jesus' resurrection every Sunday since then. And so, that next week, the disciples were inside again. The doors were locked again. Presumably because they weren't any more brave than they were before. You'd think they'd seen the risen Lord, they were going to get brave someday. But they weren't. So they locked the doors again, just to make sure. And again, Jesus broke in nonetheless. And He came and stood among them, and again said, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And then he turned to Thomas. And he offered Thomas exactly what Thomas had asked for. Thomas had said, I'm going to need to see the holes. I'm going to need to put my fingers there. And Jesus, without hearing that, without knowing that, said, Tell you what, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hand. Put out your hand and place it in my side. I'll give you evidence. And so now all of a sudden, there is evidence right before Thomas stacked on top of what he already had. You see, you're going to have to decide what are you going to do with Jesus' resurrection? And is there enough evidence to believe in it? Because there are only a few ways to explain it away. There's, there is no body. Some explain it away and say Jesus didn't die. But if you read just a little bit earlier in John chapter 19, there are the professional executioners that go to the body of Jesus, notice He's dead in their professional opinion. Right? If you're going to check out fake news, what are you going to do? You're going to get expert opinion. Expert eyewitness opinion. In their expert opinion, He was dead. Just to make sure they, they stuck a spear in His side. They knew what they were doing. Jesus was dead. Thomas had that evidence. It wasn't that Jesus somehow miraculously revived, not ever having died. He died. He was placed in the tomb. The very P 
people who went to see the tomb saw Him go in. They didn't go to the wrong place. They weren't lost. They weren't like all of these tombs that were unmarked. They knew exactly where He was. It was just really from the cross. It was probably from here to the end of the building. From the cross, this tomb. It's not easy to get lost in that situation. Peter and John ran. They looked in there. They saw that... I mean, here's another way. You might fabricate the story. You might say, well, someone stole the body. Okay, if you're going to steal the body, you're not going to carefully fold up the cloth around the head and place it in one place. Carefully fold up the, the wrapping around his, uh, the corpse and lay it in another place. And then gingerly take the body away. You're going to hustle out of there in case someone catches you in the middle of the night. Especially if there's a guard posted outside. I mean, think about that. Thomas has all this. He has his best friend saying, we saw the Lord. And now Jesus is in front of him. Here's my hands. Here's my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Jesus puts it to Thomas really the way that Jesus puts it to us. Don't disbelieve, but believe. In other words, there isn't a third option. You're either going to say this is foolishness. This is a hoax. There have been 2,000 years of human beings fooled by Jesus. Or you're going to and be disbelieving. Or you're going to believe and say, you know what? The very things that I need in order to believe news reports, in order to believe history reports, I if I apply those same things to Jesus, I'm going to believe He rose from the grave. There is more evidence really that Jesus rose from the grave than there is about Alexander the Great. If you're going to believe that you know, Washington crossed the Delaware, you're going, to have, you're going to have some level of proof, but you're not going to have as good a proof as you have of Jesus rising from the grave. And so Jesus puts it to you like He puts it to Thomas. Don't be disbelieving, but believe. And so what does Thomas do? How does Thomas respond? He responds with, My Lord and my God. Instantly. Without requiring the proof that he claimed he would need. He believes. And he helps us know, too, what it means to believe here. He says, my Lord and my God. And this is not, this is not a reaction of somebody who, who is just a little bit convinced, right? Who says, hmm, 51% it's true. This isn't the reaction of somebody who says, eh, more likely than not, Jesus rose from the dead. This is, this is the reaction of someone who is, who is firmly convinced that Jesus is alive 
from the grave. And what he says then defines for us what it means to believe. He says, my Lord or my Master. Jesus, you are my Master. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. It's not just, you are sort of my religious idea, you are a good teacher, you are a nice person, you are my Master. And, he says, you are my God. Jesus is no ordinary human being. Rather, Thomas is the first person, really, in all the Gospels to identify Jesus, to say this in as many words, my God. This book of John has, was written so that you might believe that Jesus was God. In the beginning of the book, if you were to flip back to chapter 1, the first paragraph says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. It makes the claim at the very start, Jesus is God. And it goes through and He turns water into wine and He... Um, Raises his friend from the dead and he performs all sorts of miracles. And he tells them, I and the Father are one. God and I are the same. And what happens then? They pick up stones to stone him. Ultimately, they hold that against him the rest of his life. And they kill him because he claimed to be God. So Thomas's confession here is nothing... Uh, you know, out of line. In fact, it's directly in line with exactly who Jesus said He was. My Lord and my God. And that's what it means to believe. To believe that Jesus is unique. I mean, we just sang a few moments ago, there is no rival to Him. There is no equal. That's... That's what Thomas is saying here. My Lord and my God. And so, it comes down to us. Are you going to be disbelieving or believe? Is this going to be one of those elaborate hoaxes pulled over on all humanity which you're too wise to you know, fall for? Or is this, on the other hand, something that actually happened in history. That when it happens in history has implications for your life and my life today. See, that's, that's where he goes with this. Right now, he said, I mean, Jesus had in view not just Thomas, but you and I. He said, have you believed because you see me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's that? That's you and that's me. Right? That's those of us that don't have Jesus standing before us in a locked room, but nonetheless believe on account of eyewitnesses, on account of evidence, on account of the fact that historically this is proven true, on the fact that all of those people locked in that room save one were killed for believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Not one of them backed down from that. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And again, 
What are you invited to? You're invited to believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here's the point. John brings the point home that Jesus was making a moment ago. These are written, recorded for you so that you might believe. Be, be sure of it. Be sure of it. Your believing does not make it true. You have to say, is this true? And then do I believe it? That's really the thrust of Thomas's experience. Is this true? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And if so, I have to believe it. I have to believe that Jesus is who He said He is, my Lord and my God. And the reason that that's important is because it is not just the understanding that He's a historical figure like George Washington or Alexander the Great, but that He rose from the dead and He is who He claims He is. It's that understanding that ultimately brings life. Believing you might have life in His name. Because the invitation is not simply to believe, but the invitation is an invitation to life. To have a life that death can't take away. It's to have a life that disappointment can't shatter. It's to live an indestructible life that Jesus came to bring. So that my believing you may have life. So the invitation is the same invitation for you as it was for Thomas. Don't be disbelieving, but believe. The same promise is to you as was to Thomas. If you believe, you'll have life. If Thomas believed, you'll have life. All you have to do is say, you know what? Jesus is who He says He was, my Lord and my God, and believing you'll have life in His name. That's the offer of Christianity. That's why, that's why Easter is such a big deal. Is because Jesus, alive from the dead, offers life to you and to me. And it's there for the taking. And you can say, I'm too smart for that. I'm going to deny it. The hoax isn't going to be pulled over on me. Or you can say, with Thomas, I'm convinced. My Lord and my God, I believe and I have life because of Jesus. Let me pray for us.